0: Well, thank you, worship team, and good to see each of you here this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me again as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 10. If you look at the outline in your bulletin, the reference right below the title goes back to the last time we were in this book. It could bear review, but I really meant to say chapter 10, verses 1 to 13 today. Most of you here uh, this morning or or listening online, I am confident have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. He's the one who died for our sins, rose again, you've trusted in him. This morning you have been worshiping the savior uh, that you will share eternity with. And because you are believers and because you are here this morning, I can, I think, safely assume that it's important to you to not only know Christ as Savior, but to follow Him, to serve Him, to obey Him. You you care about walking with Christ. It's sad, however, that there have been many others who might have been where you are now who no longer are worshiping with other believers, who are not serving, though they once did, who are captured by some sin, whose lives are maybe indistinguishable from the world, though if they have put their faith in Christ, they are believers. But something has created a spiritual decline, a spiritual catastrophe they really kind of fit the profile of what we saw at the last verse of chapter 9 where Paul said even of himself I beat my body and make it my slaves so that after I have preached to others I myself will not be disqualified for the prize he was not talking about losing his salvation but his concern that he would lose the well-done good and faithful servant the prize the rewards the approval of Christ forever Paul was concerned about that as he was writing to a church that had a lot of sin problems, okay? He was concerned that they could be disqualified for the prize. That's why he wrote about these things. And in the opening chapters, if you recall, he, he said, you know, one big problem throughout our church is the divisions and people taking sides. I'm of I'm Paul, I'm a Paulus, and so forth. And, and then he got into some specific sins, like chapter 5. He says, there's this guy that you are tolerating the fact that he is actually living with his stepmom in an immoral relationship. You got to deal with that. And Chapter six, he says, some of you are suing your brothers in Christ and going before the, the secular court with your with your disputes, and 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 uh, some of you are going to prostitutes. Chapter six, these are believers, people. If we don't think that believers can live in carnality, then we haven't read First Corinthians at all. So, in chapter eight, he began addressing another issue that. Uh, was evidently something that was really dragging down a lot of them and p- drawing them into sin and that was that some of the some of the g- people were were insisting on still going to the same idol feasts that they had gone to before and uh, Paul is still addressing that in chapter 10 and so uh, he is bluntly comparing them here in chapter 10 to the rebellious Israelites particularly he's focused here on the generation of those actual uh, people that had come out of slavery out of Egypt and so there's a number of references you kind of have to know your Old Testament we'll go to a few passages but it's about that generation in Exodus and numbers of the Old Testament that had come out of slavery who God had so graciously delivered so he first of all describes here's the many ways that God has shown you shown them his grace and here's what happened and the, the applications should be obvious to the Corinthians in their struggle. So let's look at the examples of his grace. Some of these phrases in the first four verses especially are a little bit confusing to us. I think the, the explanation is actually much more simple than we might think. For I do not want you to be ignorant. So, so, so that you might not be disqualified for the prize. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. They died in the desert. So what is this talking about? It's a reference to uh, the many... Blessings of the grace of God in delivering those people. So, two million people walked away from f- all these generations of slavery in Egypt. But how would you know where to go? Verse one. They had a cloud. I believe this cloud was actually the pillar of cloud that we read about in Exodus, the pillar of cloud that God used to direct them where they should go. Is so, 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 they would know where to go heading into the desert. God, God's presence was, was in this cloud that they would just follow. And if it stopped, they stopped. If it moved on, they broke camp and they, they moved on too. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. So that they had like a nightlight throughout those years in the desert. They had a nightlight telling God's presence was here and we know where to go and when to go. So that was an act of God's grace to direct them. And God has directed each of us in many physical ways. I mean, why do we live... In Ozaukee County, well, God's directed us. He took uh, Priscilla and me, you know, farm kids who met in a Christian high school and fell in love, got married, went to school, ended up here, and this is where we live. You know, God directs us physically where we're supposed to be and takes care of us that way. What else? Number two, pass through the sea. Reference to God dividing and drying the Red Sea so they could cross through on dry ground, because when when God actually brought them out of Egypt, they're on their way, and the Egyptians who were convinced to let them go finally after ten devastating plagues, changed their mind in the end said so we can't lose all these slaves. So they chase after them, and there's Israel stuck between a a, a a body of water in front of them and an approaching Egyptian army behind them. What are they supposed to do? And God did a miracle, and all night He He dried up the Red Sea and He pushed up these walls of water and made a dry path. And they all, the whole nation, two million people, walk through, and and the Egyptian says, Now we'll get them. And and they follow them into the sea. But as soon as Israel passes through, God lets the water. Come over and they drown, he drowns the army of the Egyptians. What an act of God's grace! How many times has God kept us alive? Accidents that could have been, or times He's healed us of something. We're all here safe and sound. Also, He said. You were all baptized into Moses. Now we think baptism is some. What's a baptism into Moses? The word baptism is not first of all about water. It's first of all about being identified with someone. When we baptize someone with water here or, or outside or wherever we're doing it, um, we're being identified with Christ the head of the church, the one who saved us. Well, Christ hadn't come yet, so they were identified with Moses, who was their representative before God. And Moses was the one who spoke with with God face-to-face, like one talks to a man, and and they had the privilege of being identified. They had this great spiritual leader, Moses, who heard from God directly. Uh, They were certainly grateful for their spiritual leader, right? Hold that thought. What else did they do? They ate the same spiritual food, verse 3. Uh, spiritual food, I think, just simply means here, supernatural fruit, food. Uh, they were, God created manna for them. What do you eat when you're a huge nation walking into the wilderness? There's no opportunity to, to, uh, to raise a crop, to harvest it, to, to uh, thresh it, to mill it, to make dough, to, to bake it each day. So God shortcut that whole process. He says, I'll make the bread. And every night God made the bread and just laid it out all over the ground so they could just go in the morning and gather and pick it up. And it tasted good. It tasted like honey, it says. I bet they were so grateful and content, right? Like us, who we're always grateful and content for the amount of money that God provides us. What else do they do? They drank from the same spiritual they they drank the same spiritual drink verse 4 and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them that rock was christ christ we're in the old testament right (laughs) this story no so obviously they didn't know about christ they're 1400 years before christ but the corinthians who are reading this paul knew you know about christ in fact they had the right theology they knew that christ was the eternal god so christ was there so as they were being led it was jesus actually leading them so i think it's just simply a reference that jesus was doing what god was doing even then the pre-incarnate jesus it's possible that the the rock is some kind of a biblical type also foreshadowing christ how he provides for us physically and spiritually but i mean all of this miraculous provision just a fantastic display of the grace of God that everything they had was the grace of God. They longed to be free of slavery. God sends 10 plagues to devastate the land, so they're done. They're free. They uh, are frightened by the army. God says, I'll drown them. You're hungry, I'll feed you. You're thirsty, give you this supernatural water, strike the rock, water in the desert, got all you need. Surely there was just like praise and worship going on in this, in this group of people, right? Just to think how far they'd come and, and, and they're just enjoying the grace of God every day. Surely they just are, you no. Know. What we actually find is that people who are complaining and bitter and grumbling for more and better and sooner provisions and resenting the leadership and rebelling against the leadership of Moses. And in fact, when the time came year or two into it, that they could actually go in and take the promised land and the spies come back and they say, it's really great land, but I mean, these are big, bad people. Almost the entire nation cried like babies and said, we don't want to go because I think our children are going to die if we go attack the the Canaanites. So how does God respond when the people have complained in spite of all the gracious blessings he had given them? Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Most would be an understatement. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, of that two million people, it's not a good percentage, is it? Only two entered the promised land to enjoy the blessing. And instead of, and God said, you know, the children you thought would die there, your children are the ones who are going to go take the blessing. Those are the ones who are going to enjoy the promised land. You guys, you're kind of just going to be out in this desert the next 38 years, and I'm going to keep providing for you. I'm going to keep uh, guiding you. I'm going to tell you where to be. I'm going to give you Moses to help dis- settle your disputes. And you'll live out your life, but you're kind of going to live them out in a, in a desert. And so they did. They just filled out their time till they died in the desert. And their kids went in. What a lesson of God's grace. God's grace is truly free. Uh, salvation comes to us as a free gift, no strings attached. God, God, God didn't say, if, if, if you obey me, I'll take you out of Egypt. I, I'll take you out of Egypt, you put the blood on the doorpost. And so salvation, likewise, is free to us. What's the point of God's grace? It is to motivate us to sacrificial obedience and sacrificial Service. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ compels us, doesn't it? The love of Christ compels us to, to live for him who, who died for us. How can we do anything else? There were no strings attached, but what is the response to grace? It is to live sacrificially and gratefully. So the question that, that Paul had for the Corinthians, and that this passage has for us is, are we living in grace? gratitude because someone living in gratitude is the person who will find spiritual victory someone who's living in in rejection or rebellion or resentment will face catastrophe and that's really what happened is the is the discipline of israel and so there are yet more events from exodus and numbers that paul says i I need to tell you about these verse six now these things occurred as examples 1,400 years before that group. These things occurred as examples to keep us, referring to the Corinthians, first century, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The reason we study the Old Testament and we try to go back and forth and do that faithfully here is because those are examples. We're supposed to to see that God is the same in every generation this past week, the past month or so, I've been reading in First uh, and Second Kings, and, and even though I've preached through those books uh, somewhat in recent years, I, I just keep getting struck with, with lessons of you know, Ahab's greed and Jezebel's deceit and, and their terrible, ugly end of life. And so, so why do we need these basically PG-13 stories of the Old Testament to warn and teach us? About the seriousness of sin and what were the lessons that that Paul had in mind for the Corinthians here what sin problems is he specifically addressing here well it goes back to chapter 8 he's still on this subject of some of you people are going as believers are still going to the idol feasts now he's already talked about the meat in chapter 8 He says you guys are disputing is it okay to eat meat that's been offered to idols and he says, I get it. Meat is meat. So if you're buying the market, it doesn't matter if it was once sacrificed. In, in, but but if, you have, if there's other Christians who have convictions about this, be sensitive, but, but whatever. The issue is not the meat. There's a bigger concern. The issue is the feasts, not the meat. And like the idolatry that the Israelites fell into that first generation he's going to describe, going to those idol feasts can can blow up your spiritual life Corinthians because it'll draw you back into the idolatry and the idolatry draws you back into the sins like immorality so verse 7 do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry Exodus 32 is the reference and and these references are in your in your outline if you have time to read them sometime it's when Moses was um, up in the mountain and receiving the law and the people thought where is our leader and thus they said where is our God we need some gods and we need we need gods to worship and and Aaron who was left in charge Moses' brother quickly put together a horrible plan he says, give me all your jewelry, and he, he made a golden calf out of that jewelry, and they end up worshiping this golden calf. Foolish, foolish, and it sparked all the old temptations, and a horrible, idolatrous, immoral party broke out that Moses then walks into, and they dance and drink and indulge in all kinds of immorality, worshiping around the calf. Why, why, does, why does that happen? with idolatry. If you glance ahead to verse 20, that's our study next week, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. Just to know that when when you put a God replacement in your life, you are now in occultic territory. When you go where Satan dominates, you end up doing what Satan wants you to do. We can't be ignorant of our enemies. Read certain books, open certain web pages, and you are in a spiritually dark place where Satan dominates. That's how Satan works, and that idolatry is closely identified with immorality, which is the next thing he mentions in another story, referencing another story, because immorality has always been God's, uh, Satan's key tool against God's people. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Really? Is he like just throwing out numbers? No, it's actually, it's in the book of Numbers. 25, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, neighbors, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. Come to the party with me. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And that's why he sent this plague that killed so many of them. The Israelite guys did not just go to the Baal worship with these women because uh, the Baal calf idol was so attractive, it was actually very ugly. And Paul knew that the Corinthian men who were going to these idol feasts were not just going there to, you know, eat with their friends. There were the religious brothels. And Satan's been destroying men and women and families and, and uh, kids through sexual immorality since the book of Genesis and so that where we go with our, our eyes and our minds and our bodies is to the territory Satan rules. When the men of Moab, when the men of Israel went with those Moab women, they knew exactly what they were ending up doing. And they paid with it, paid for it with their lives when they took God's great gift of sexual intimacy, which then becomes Satan's great pit of despair for Christian after Christian as well. Well, maybe some of the Corinthians reading this are kind of like, well, I'm not doing that. And so Paul moves on to some of the more acceptable sins that are actually despised by God and dangerous as well. Verse 9 and 10, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying Angel. Complaining. These are actually references to two different events, but what they have in common is in both cases, God's people were marked by complaining, grumbling, negativity. Is that is that really a big deal? Uh, I mean, we all get frustrated, right? Isn't it just normal to be complaining about our circumstances? Is that sin? You decide. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. What food? is It's the manna that he was supplying every day. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many Israelites died. Now, if you know the rest of that story, you know that as they cried out to God in their distress, He actually heard them and in His grace said, Make a bronze snake and whoever looks on it will live. And they did. And it's an example of the cross and the grace and the forgiveness of God. It's, a, it's an amazingly redemptive story, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't serious about this sin. The sin of complaining. W- when is it okay to just be honest about God, with God about our feelings? And when is it complaining that dishonors God? Because there's some kind of line there that we don't want to cross. There's a line, I think, when our Resentment is against God, as it said there. They spoke against, verse 5, God. They spoke against God and against Moses. There's a resentment against God. I'm I'm encouraged, as most of you probably are too, when you read the Psalms, David has a lot of Psalms of complaint. And the Psalms of complaint are when David is able to honestly express his feelings and his hurt these people that have hurt me my friends have betrayed me my enemies are against me the circumstances he can express his feeling but do you know what you find at the end of really every one of those psalms yet i will put my trust in you so his view of god never changed his confidence in the in the in, in the faithfulness of god did not change but he could at the same time be honest you can be honest with god when you continue to trust in God because it's it's resentment against God that dishonors him and its trust that honors him. So what did they complain of, what else did they complain about? They complained about their their leaders and that is verse 10. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. That's the event of numbers 16. <clears throat> the rebellion of a man named Korah Cora <clears throat> Korah was watching, you know, Moses and Aaron, the leaders, and they were, they were doing all the upfront stuff, and, and they would take the, 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 the sacrificial fire. They, had the, they were the tribe of Levi. They could do that. And, and, and Korah said, look, you aren't the only ones who are holy. We're holy, too. Okay. And then Korah did what sometimes complainers do, and he's, he found a bunch of other guys who agreed with him. 250 who agreed with them, because complainers can always find allies, and they all came and said, come on, we're holy too, we can lead too. And it actually says that Moses fell on his face before the ground. He knew this is going to be serious. And he says, uh, tomorrow, you and your families, you go stand over there and let's see what God does. Well, you know what God did? He opened up the earth. And these 250 families were swallowed up. Seems that God takes complaining very seriously. And it feels so justified sometimes. Circumstances, finances, church stuff, bosses, teachers, spouses. C- can we just do an attitude check as we read this? Do our best friends hear us complain a lot without trust in God? Do do our spouses, our children, just hear a lot of negativity? Do do we harbor a complaining spirit? Does God see us dominated by gratitude? Or or complaint? If, it, I mean, if this passage seems heavy, it seems God is Paul is just writing to confront, convict, and condemn. I, I, we really need to keep reading verses 11, 12, and 13 because this is the heart of where he's going, and it's a heart of hope. Because when you think of these three basic categories of sin, idolatry, that which replaces God, immorality, and um, uh, complaining, these, see, this is just what everybody faces, right? But there is hope. These things happened as examples and were written down as warnings on, for us on whom the fulfillment of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I hope you find encouragement there. But Paul says, first of all, in verse 11, these are warnings for us. I'm glad he used the plural. Paul was not above uh, temptation. Paul says, me too, I need these warnings. We on whom the fulfillment of ages has come, I think it's just simply a way of saying, yeah, I know, I've given you Old Testament illustrations And we live on the other side of the cross. We know who Christ is. We've put our faith in him. I know we're in a different age. Uh, We're in that that, that next fulfilling age after Christ. But but the character of God is unchanged and the seriousness of sin is still there. If you doubt that, a few weeks from now we'll be in chapter 11, verse 30, where the travesty at 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 communion time, it said in verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, died, like like God doesn't have the ability to intervene these days. So verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Don't think it can't happen to you. No matter how well your walk with God seems to be going right now, be on the alert. Uh, Satan's a roaring lion, right? Seeking someone... In believers whom we can devour and so maybe this morning you've worshiped with sincerity God's spoken to your heart through a song these these truths are, are mean a lot to you you're aware of the Holy Spirit at work you are you are grateful for his grace you are operating out of love but the, like the King James Version says let him who stand takes heed lest he fall So be asking we have to be asking ourselves what what could cause us to fall? So that what's important to us today here in this room is no longer important to us. Just even using the illustrations here, is, is there an idol? Is there, a, is there, a, is there something? It's, it's, it's not the golden calf. It's our own fashioned calf. It's, it's something that, that would have the ability to obsess and take over our time and attention where we are all in, on something fun, a hobby, uh, a job, a career, a relationship. Suddenly that is like, that's everything to me. It could displace God in the coming months or years. Is it sexual immorality? Is there a relationship where we are living in a danger zone and you're tempted to do something really appealing and God speaks to your heart and says, yeah, and it's going to destroy you. Or mental immorality I don't need to quote statistics of pornography to know that if we do not seek God's help we will pay a greater and greater price the longer we don't get his help is it complaining something that is silently eroding your soul because there's a growing resentment against God about your life to the place where you no longer really see god at work in your life you, you no longer can almost see the goodness of god because you've allowed this negativity just to control you hard as whatever is and you might also find that negativity and complaining silently pushes people away from you uh, they won't say it but uh, it, it's harder to spend time with someone who's just complaining This isn't talking about not being honest about our our struggles. Because we gather together to encourage one another. So we've got to be honest and transparent. This isn't like being fakey. I'm doing fine. How are you? Complaining poisons our relationship with God. And we can tell it's poisoning it if we no longer want to be in the Word and prayer because we're no longer leaning on that be careful you don't fall. Too many who have once worshipped sincerely now hardly worship at all. But here's the hope. In verse 13, just, I just love it. Memorize it as a kid. And so it, it, in various times of life, it just keeps uh, ringing in my ears. Uh, three basic statements if you can follow these. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So, you're not alone battling sin's temptations. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He, he limits the temptation to what we can bear. And then finally, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out or escape so that you can stand up under it. God provides a way out, there's hope. Common to man. You are not alone. You are not the first. You are not the worst. You're just a believer in Christ who might be standing at a fork in the road who who God speaks to today as a wake-up call. There's a spiritual danger zone in your life, and you're going to call out to God, but you're not alone. You're not alone, and that's one of the reasons why you, you and I need to lean into relationships in the body of Christ. The reason, the reason we need to connect with one another is not so that we can meet amazing Christians who are having far more victory than us, because that's what we sometimes assume. We, you, know, you walk into worship service, and at least the people you don't know, you assume they're doing really well. No, they're just actually struggling like you and I are. And so we really need to struggle together towards Christ. Uh, to know that these are common things. God is faithful, secondly. He'll limit our temptation. he will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that, or do you believe Satan's lie, that you're a hopeless case? That your temptations are, are too great to bear? One of the worst doctrinal errors we can have as believers is not to believe his promise to deliver us from temptation. Like, like, no, it's too much for me. Why would Jesus say, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, if that prayer could not be answered? I mean, he wouldn't because if you don't believe it just scratch that out of the lord's prayer just skip that when you if you say it or, or or read it because it's true he can deliver us he and he limits our temptation how does he do it by providing a way of escape or a way out that we could stand up under it maybe you've asked what is that way of escape I, I, when you're reading scripture the simplest answer is, in scripture is usually the best and the, and, the, and the context often answers the question that you're asking about a passage and this is one of those cases I think he'll provide a way if you just keep reading if, he'll provide a way of escape so you can stand up under it therefore my dear friends flee from idolatry it seems that what he's saying is the way of escape is to flee what tempts you the idolatry at the pagan temples was Satan's way of eroding the uh, holiness of the Corinthian church. And um, I suppose some were defending it, saying, well, you know, I need to go to those feasts for business purposes. I, you know, the the food tastes better there, and remember Paul said, meat is meat. and Or I go there to witness. You know, temptation is so sneaky, we can just fool ourselves into... Excusing why we do spiritually foolish things. But Paul, the rest of this chapter, we'll look at it next week, is saying, just flee. Don't go there. Back in chapter 6, verse 18, regarding immorality, he said, flee from sexual immorality, 6 verse 18. I think then we mentioned as well that story of, of Joseph, young, handsome, and Joseph, Jacob's son who uh, ended up managing Potiphar's household in Egypt, right? Potiphar's wife had a a crush on him and kept propositioning him. I'm sure that was flattering. I'm going to guess she had kind of a trophy wife, good looks, and uh, Joseph kept saying no. He kept saying no, saying, how can I do this wicked thing against God? But So he kept his distance, but then there was that day when there was no one around, and she grabbed his cloak and said, come to bed with me, and don't think Joseph wasn't tempted. Think about his background. He was hated, abandoned, sold by his brothers. I mean, if there's ever a sense of deserving some pleasure. He um, had no friend or relative. If, if ever there was a... A cloak of privacy I can get by with this it'd be Joseph but what sustained him was I cannot do this thing against God his relationship to God had sustained him when he was hated when he was thrown into the pit when he was sold when he thought he's gonna die and when he was it's the relationship with God that enabled him chapter 39 verse 12 to do this he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. He fled immorality. So if you're in the grips of any of these things, an idolatry, something replacing God, immorality, complaining, the answer is to somehow flee it. And I I hesitate to say it because it just sounds like, just say no, it's so simple, just say no. But I guess to think for wrapping this up, what gives us the ability to flee, to just say no to sin, to just say yes to righteousness? How can we be prepared for temptation? We know we're supposed to flee. There's a temptation, flee. Choose to flee, just say no. But there's more than that. You've got to know your resources. You've got to know the power you have to flee. Your power is the Holy Spirit. You are a believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within you to give you love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, right? So you're going to have to lean into the Holy Spirit. And that's where other believers can become a part of that, like a, like a network of others who are also leaning upon the Holy Spirit and learning to walk in the Spirit, step by step, another temptation, another So, does this power just all of a sudden, like, come over you? I think it comes from a soul condition. So, you're going to have to check, what is the condition of your soul? Are you growing in your relationship with God through word and prayer? There's a maintenance that that Joseph had gone through that throughout all these hard things, he kept going back to, I know the God of my father. And we have his word, and we have his prayer, and the reason we need to be in it constantly is because it is going to purify our minds, going to transform our sense of priority so that we even will draw upon the power at a time of temptation. To get even more fundamental, it starts with a goal. What do you want in life? Have you decided your purpose in life is to honor God no matter what? Because if your purpose is fuzzy, your direction is all over the place. If you walk into one of these side rooms right now, they're totally dark. They have no windows, but you can walk into these rooms and you flip a switch on. Whew, you got light. We'd like to think that choosing to do the right thing and fleeing temptation is like flipping a switch, but if you understand electricity at all, and I. I don't hardly, but I know that that switch is connected to wires. You trace it back, there was an electrical plan for this facility. And because of that plan, then there was an installation process, and there are wires, and there are breaker boxes, there are there are safety features, there are... And then it comes down to a switch, and it has to be wired properly, and that's why you can flip a switch on, and it actually works. So just to, to use that illustration a little bit, do you have the plan that says... I'm going to give my life dedicated to be qualified for the prize. I'm dedicating in my life. My plan is to please God no matter what. Because if you do, then there's going to, have to be a constant maintenance of your soul. Checking the lines of communication and and knowing that you are seeking to walk with him. Recognizing attitudes before they become actions. Recognizing desires that are are wrong before they become catastrophes. And then, knowing, okay, I know what I want. I know what God provides. I got the Spirit within me. I want to live by the Spirit. So we can, at that moment of temptation, plug into that. And then, you make the choice. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to change this. I'm going to... I'm going to get help whatever that whatever that switch needs to be maybe the electric illustration can just kind of help us think through that there has to be the preparation of the soul or we will never choose to flee temptation but god's promise is that he is faithful he won't give you more than you can bear and when you are tempted he will provide that way of escape so be preparing your your goal your soul Draw upon the power so you can make the right choice and avoid the spiritual catastrophe that too many of God's people have experienced. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are in a true battle, and uh, we know it in our own heart and mind that uh, we are... a frustration and, and, and sin. Lord, I just pray that you would give us a clarity of mind so that we would... Uh, not be thinking like the world, and not maybe even be thinking of the way we have been, but that we'd be following the, the will of your spirit. Lord, we just want to recommit ourselves to the process of holiness, realizing it's not just a step here or there, but it's a lifestyle of walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen.